Well, I hope you all had a great Thanksgiving. It's good to be back. Today is always a little bit of a weird day just because, uh, you know, uh, folks who don't travel are here, but those who do rarely make it back for Sunday morning of Thanksgiving. But I'm glad you're here. Um, and uh, just the opportunity for us to continue in our series through the Gospel of John. So as has already been read, we're in John uh, chapter 4 today, a very famous passage, um, and we're looking at uh, the woman at the well. Now, I don't know if you've, I'm sure you've experienced this at some point, but um, have you ever been in a situation where you just felt like an utter outsider? Uh, you're around a group of people or in a situation, and you're just kind of like, I'm not sure I belong in this moment. Uh, everyone else seems to be one way. I see it it's, it's, I'm another way or whatever. Uh, I remember back when I was, uh, uh, I shared a few weeks ago that I had served as chaplain to the Red Sox. Um, and back in 2009, it was February 2009 that I met my first major league players. I uh, flew down to uh, Fort Myers, Florida for the spring training and was going to lead my first chapel. That was like my first like actual connection. I wasn't going to go meet some players or talk to them ahead of time. I was literally just going to walk in and lead chapel. So I walk into this batting cage where, where chapel is going to be held. And slowly these, you know, these players start just filing in and my feelings, I, my nerves began to go up more and more. The more players came in because I had not been around a lot of professional athletes. I wasn't one. I had never played anything beyond high school um, and was not even really great at that. If you know basketball, I was a garbage player. I stayed under the basket, pounded around, got rebounds and made garbage shots. So um, <laughs> that was my, I was good at it, but uh, not that great. But being around these professional athletes, that, that who, some of who were like household names across Boston and some around the U.S. and even uh, around the globe, and I'm standing there, and, and my, my goals began to change as, I, as they started filing in more and more and chapels getting ready to start. It went from like, oh, I'm going to kill it, I'm going to impress them all, to try not to throw up on them. Um, <laughs> I think I was more nervous than I'd ever been around uh, anyone in my life. Uh, and so, uh, by God's grace, it went well and ended up doing uh, chapel for uh, 11 years with them. Um, but it was a distinct feeling as I was around these just, these are elite athletes, and I was not, um, and still am not, if you haven't guessed. But, <laughs> but I, I, I knew I was an outsider in that context. They had language, they had uh, ways of relating that was very uh, different for me. I don't know if you've ever been in that situation and felt like an outsider uh, looking in. That might actually be you this morning. You may have decided to come to, to church today, and you're, you feel like an outsider. You look around, and you're like, these are a lot of nice people. They look like they have it all together. Uh, look at their kids. Their kids are behaving. Mine are hanging from the rafters. Or, you know, like you just feel, you might feel like an outsider. You, you, uh, you feel an out, like an outsider because you maybe don't come from a, a nice, neat sort of religious background, or maybe um, because you're carrying wounds or hurts or shame in your life, and you look around, and you go, these don't these people don't look like they're full of shame and guilt, but I am. Uh, and so today, as we, we're looking at this passage, we're looking at a picture of Jesus um, reaching an outsider. He seeks out and engages this woman and brings her into his family. And we're going to see exactly the depth of, of, of what this really meant and why it was scandalous, even in Jesus's lifetime. Um, but the fact is, Jesus took this wounded, broken, hurting woman who was longing for something deep in her soul and satisfied that with his grace, uh, described in this passage as living water. Um, so the big idea for today is that Jesus came to make outsiders into insiders. Came to make outsiders into insiders. 
to bring the marginalized, the hurting, the wounded, the shameful, the guilty into his family where they're free from that. We'll see him identify this woman's thirst, point to her, the source of her thirst, satisfy her thirst, and then joyfully celebrate the harvest. But before we get into that, we need to look at the background because this passage just does not translate into modern times. There's some, some texts you can read that there's enough similarities or to, to understand, but, but we, we do not get how scandalous this text really was without understanding the background. And so we, we need to first understand that uh, Israel, the, the, the land of Israel was divided up into three particular uh, regions. In the north, there should be a map here, um, in the north was Galilee, and in the south was Judea, and Jerusalem is in Judea. It's on the northern side of, of Judea. And then there's this big blue area in the middle called Samaria. And I hope you can begin to see the, 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 the challenge here. Jews lived in the, in the south mostly, but also in the north in Galilee, uh, and Samaria was a troubled land. We'll just describe it that way. It goes back a long ways, um, back, way back into the Old Testament. And around uh, 722 BC, before, um, just before this, the, the land had split in between, uh, basically between Judea and Samaria and Galilee. The 10 tribes of Israel, 10 of the tribes of Israel were the northern land called Israel. And this went, this the little Old Testament lesson for you to help you uh, understand. But when, when you hear about uh, Israel after uh, Solomon in the Old Testament, it's referring to the northern kingdom, those 10 tribes. When you hear Judah, it's referring to the southern tribe um, of Judah, and Benjamin is included in that um, as a tiny tribe. But Jerusalem was in Judah. Um, Israel, the northern kingdom, never had a good king, literally had the worst king, serial kings you have ever heard. Um, one of them's name was Ahab, and that's literally where, um, you know, Moby Dick, <laughs> the character is named after, right? Um, this horrible, horrible character. Um, but but uh, what had happened is in 722, the Assyrians conquered the northern kingdom. So Judah is still in the south. Northern kingdom gets conquered, 10 tribes. And the Assyrians did something that was very common in that world at that time and still happens a little bit today. When they conquer a land, you take the people or the majority of people, at least all the leaders and talented and gifted people, and you take them to another land that you've already conquered. And you begin to disperse different peoples into different lands with a hope of keeping them from ever unifying and retaking their land. So you, you end up uh, forcing different ethnic groups into different lands so they couldn't keep their ethnic identity over generations. And this is what happened. Um, the people who were left in the, the, the northern kingdom were the poor, and they were left to take care of the crops. And when the other people from other lands came in, they intermarried with them, and they adopted some of their religious practices. So these were Jews who had then intermarried with foreign people and then begun to practice along with their their worship of Yahweh, some of these pagan practices and intermixing. And if you know anything about the Old Testament, God's not very cool with that. Um, he's not like, yeah, just whatever you want to add on to me is totally cool. However you want to worship, it's great with me. Uh, as long as I just get in there somewhere, you know, uh, he's, he says, no, I'm the one true God. I've redeemed you. Uh, you belong to me. I'm, I'm your God and you are my people. Um, and so the Samaritans began over generations to intermix and become uh, a, a, an entirely different ethnic group of people, though they, many of them still claimed a deep uh, connection with Israel and Judaism. Uh, the Persians 
eventually let the Jews go back to Jerusalem after the southern kingdom had been conquered later, and then uh, let the Jews go back to Jerusalem and begin to rebuild the city. They rebuilt uh, the city of Jerusalem. This is Nehemiah, Ezra and Nehemiah in the Old Testament. And they rebuilt the temple. And meanwhile, the Samaritans are trying to come help with that. And there's corruption there, and they're not genuine in their desire to help. And they said, no, you can't help. You're not even Jewish people anymore. Uh, and so there began to be this division, and it became so deep that the Samaritans created their own temple on Mount Gerizim in about 400 BC. And then the high priests from Jerusalem raised an army, basically, of priests and some military folks, and they went over to Samaria and burned the, the temple to the ground in 120 BC. That's how mad they were that this temple even existed. Jesus comes on the scene. This is a long standing, like, Hundreds and hundreds of years of ethnic and religious hatred. This isn't a disagreement. This isn't, I don't like you. We don't really get along. This is, I hate the fact that you exist. And you hate the fact that I exist. That's the deep-seated issue here. This is the reason why it was normally a three-day trip journey from Galilee to Jerusalem. Um, and, but that only happened if you took the shortest route through Samaria. So many Jews would travel over to the green area, Perea, just to bypass Samaria, even though it took longer. That's the background for this passage. Jesus at the, uh, literally says it ha he had to pass through Samaria. Verse 4, and he had to pass through Samaria. This is not a, like, he, he simply was in a hurry and had to get there. But the, the, the language there in the original language is pointing to necessity. There was a necessity for him to go through Samaria, even though most Jews chose to avoid it, even though it took longer. Jesus wanted to go to Samaria. He wanted to go to Samaria because he, isn't, he had an appointment with a woman at a well. One woman. And I love this story. Because it wasn't thousands of people, it wasn't the crowd, it wasn't huge groups of people, it wasn't the religious leaders. It was one woman, a Samaritan woman, an immoral Samaritan woman by a well. And so um, if you've got your journal, you could circle the words had to, because I think that points to just how John is describing what Jesus was doing. Had to go there. So the first thing we see is he identifies her thirst. We're going to spend more time in the first two and then hit the last two quickly, but I wanted to make sure you knew that. Jesus identifies her thirst. So it's about noon, and Jesus is at Jacob's well. This goes all the way back to Jacob in Genesis. Jacob had this land. He dug this well to feed his flocks and his people, and that well was still around when Jesus came along, and it is still around today. You can still go there. It still has water, which is really fascinating. Um, and then the fact that Jesus was there at, at the well at noon, in the middle of the day, um, you know, by himself. This language here points to the fact that this is written not like a, a myth, right? There's, there's everyday details. Actually, it begins with the fact that what? Jesus was tired and thirsty and hungry. If you're going to make a savior who's super awesome and you, you know, like floating around and like doing miracles and you're going to make him like this superhero, you don't say, and he got really tired and he got really thirsty and he just needed to sit down for a little while, right? <laughs> like, 
But that's why the Gospels read as if they're true. They read like everyday descriptions of things, even though there are supernatural things happening. So he's hungry, he's thirsty, and he sits down because Jesus is a man. He's fully God, but he's no less a human being than you and I. Guess what? If you'd been traveling, you'd been speaking, and and you had not eaten or had anything to drink, how would you feel? You would feel tired, you would feel thirsty, and you would feel hungry. There you go. Jesus was a man. So this well was a source of water um, and uh, for, for that entire region. And it was around noon, middle of the day, and a woman came up to get water. Now, this may not seem weird to you and I. Um, but again, you have to think about uh, an agricultural uh, environment, dry, hot, arid, um, middle of the day. And this woman comes, and there's no one else around. That gives us clues. There's, there's something at work here. This, this woman is coming at a time where there's no one else around. You see, back then, because people would come to get water in the morning and at the evening as, as groups of people, it was like the social hub. It was, it was like a coffee shop where you'd meet up with someone and catch up. How you doing? How's your family? What's going on? What's the latest news? They didn't have Instagram, so they couldn't follow you or, or be real, so there were no like, close connections there to see what you were doing at 2.34 yesterday afternoon. They had to ask you. I know, it's weird, right? You had to talk to people to find out what was going on with them and not just look at their feet. Um, so Jesus, uh, Jesus comes upon this, this woman who's by herself, avoiding that normal rhythm of the morning and the evening. We don't know 100% why, um, but it's, it's clear from what Jesus says later that this woman was socially ostracized um, among the Samaritans. Now, how did Jews feel about Samaritans? Go back to that. And how did you think Jews felt about a woman who was ostracized by the Samaritans? Like, this was like saying, oh, there's the worst people over here, and then there's a person they didn't like. <laughs> That's not even in their, like, realm. Like, this, this is saying this woman was an outcast. She was an utter outsider. Verse 7, picking up. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. First disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Pause on that real quick. You're like, how many? Doesn't he have like 12 disciples? Why did they all need to go get food? They didn't need 12 disciples to carry food for 13 people. Like, we get that, right? Why do you think he sent them all away? Because he needed to have a one-on-one conversation with this woman, and he did not want his disciples interfering. He wanted to care for this woman, and the disciples would have gotten in the way as we find out later. (laughs) The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. There you go. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Now, Jesus's initial approach is to request water from this woman. It presupposes a favorable response. Um, But his request did have a surprising element. A normal Jewish person wouldn't even ask a Samaritan for water, let alone a respected rabbi ever speaking to a woman in public, one-on-one, let alone a Samaritan woman. And so Jesus is breaking all kinds of of social barriers in this moment. Jews under, she would have understood and, and even the way Jesus was asking, the Jews would often, when they had to travel or even spend the night going through Samaria, they would bring their own cups 
and, and plates so that they did not have to eat off Samaritan cups and plates because they were unclean, right? How would you feel if you invited folks over for Thanksgiving and they just brought their own cups and plates and they're like, hey, we just brought our own. And you're like, well, am I not good enough? You know? And that's, that's exactly it. They would not have eaten, at, eaten off of their own cups and plates. And yet Jesus is saying, hey, you've got, you've got a, a bucket. Can you get me some water? Jesus broke these social norms in his desire to make an outsider into an insider, to take someone who was far away from God and make them close to God. Uh, Trillia Newbell said this on this passage. She says, cultural lines, religious lines, ethnic lines, and gender lines mark dramatic rings around that well. But here's the thing about Jesus. He's not afraid to cross lines. So in this conversation, she was framing it out in terms of the ethnic tension, but Jesus doesn't step into that. Instead, he reframes it and says, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that's saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. He doesn't let her direct the conversation because to him, that's not worth spending any time on because he's, he's not here to nuance why he's talking to her, like how he's crossing this bridge because he's already done it. I mean, he's come across the bridge. She didn't have to come to him. He came to her. He's crossed the line. He has stepped into her world and he has begun to engage her because he, and the reason he wouldn't, wasn't interested in talking about that is because he was going after her heart. A couple of weeks ago, um, we looked at John 3. A similar encounter. There's like four conversations Jesus has with individuals in these passages from John 3, 4, and 5. Um, and in, in 3, he is engaged with Nicodemus, if you remember. Nicodemus was a religious leader, a rabbi in Jerusalem, and he came to uh, Jesus at night. And Jesus engaged him and, and flipped his, his script, right? What did he tell him? He said, you must be born again. He, 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 he answered questions, but he engaged him, going after his heart, helping him to understand his need for something radical to happen. And in, this, in that passage, Jesus pointed to the need for every human being to be born again, that that longing and thirst in your heart, in your soul, is satisfied when you are born by, as Jesus said, the spirit and water. And then in this passage, he's using that language again in it to a degree, the thirst and the, uh, the longing of your soul. It's funny, this woman in, in, in one chapter, he goes from speaking to one of the single most respected people in all of Jerusalem to the person that would probably be the least respected in Jerusalem, Samaria, or Galilee. He's showing the range he has, right? You talk about people who have range, right? Actors who have range or actresses who have range. Jesus is showing the range of the kingdom of God. It's for the religious and it's for the irreligious. It's for the person who seems to have their whole life together and it's for the person whose life is a wreck. She's confused and actually asks him, are, are you greater than Jacob who, who dug that well? In other words, she said, Jacob, who's our forefather, who gave us this well of water, which is still around hundreds and hundreds of years after he's gone, are you greater than him? And he turns again to show how the thirst for physical water is just a picture of the soul's thirst for living water. She still doesn't quite get it. And asks him to give her some. And I'm like, yeah, that's great. It sounds like, but then she says, 
please give me some so I don't have to come back to this well anymore, right? So she's still not quite getting it. She thinks it's some sort of physical water that re, like, you know, I don't know, keeps, keeps multiplying or something. I think the question that this section proposes for each of us is, do we thirst? Does our soul thirst for more? Do we thirst for more than what this world has given us? Do we thirst for more than what is offered to us by this world? Do we thirst for more than, than achieving all our wildest dreams in our career or reaching that pinnacle of family success or, uh, or having all those pleasure or all those experiences that we see and, and, and desire? Do we, is there something more than all of that? It's interesting, they, you know, there's a lot of research into dopamine now and, and, and how, like, it relates to pleasure and desire and all of that. And, and it's like we're, we're built to be a little bit disappointed once we reach something. <laughs> it's almost like that thing was not ever meant to ultimately satisfy us. And I, and, I, and I think in some ways, I'm not saying we're not biological creatures. That happens to everybody, regardless of whether you're a Christian or not. But, but it also kind of points to the reality of something sustaining, right? Something that that isn't a roller coaster ride in your life, but a sustaining, satisfying um, water, living water for your soul. The truth is, there's not a person in this room nor a person you'll see this week that doesn't have a thirst deep in their soul for something that transcends themselves, something that's bigger than themselves, whether people want to admit it or not. So Jesus points, or Jesus says, acknowledged and recognized, identified her, her, her thirst, and now he points to the source of her thirst. Secondly, Jesus points to the source of her thirst. Look at verse 16 through 18. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, you're right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. Now, this seems to be an abrupt shift in the conversation, right? You're like, wait a minute, Jesus, we were just talking about living water. Now you're trying to, like, out her? You're trying to expose her, her, her struggles? Seems to come out of nowhere, right? Go ask your husband. But Jesus isn't mean, being mean. He's getting at the source of her, her thirst. She has it. She's already acknowledged it. And he's, he's trying to uncover and un, unpack why she has it. And the reason for that is because you can't actually take the living water from God until you understand your need for God, the depth of your need for God, right? Like the, the, the thirst in your soul is not simply for a thing that will help you while you're enjoying everything else. Your thirst of your soul is to be connected to the infinite God who created you. That's, the, that's what your thirst is. And so until you can kind of recognize how you've been trying to get around that, then you'll simply see God as an add-on, right? Like a really good meal and, and uh, a drink, and then at the end you have like, oh, there's a dessert wine. I'll just have a little bit of that. It's a nice dessert wine. That's how you'll see the living water. That's how you'll see God instead of understanding that God is the meal and the drink and the dessert wine. She responds with an attempt to move on, but Jesus knows the deeper truth. This woman is carrying sexual and relational brokenness in her past. By the way, this almost surely involves abuse. Almost surely involves abuse and treating her like property. Like to have had five husbands, 
to be in this situation now. This, is, this was not a city of a million people. This is Sychar, a town. And maybe she'd moved from town to town around the area, but like, this was not a situation that pointed to a past of, of, of wholeness or a family of origin that really cared for her, and then she moved out. This is a woman who had wounds, who had shame, who had guilt, who probably had some fear, because how, how was she living with a man right now? She wasn't married to him, which meant, by the way, he didn't even have to issue a, a divorce to kick her out. She, 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 he, she could walk home after being at this well, and he'd say, I'm done with you, get out. She had no recourse, no protection. This is a tender moment. Jesus is drawing this woman out. He's trying to bring her healing and help and hope. He's not confronting her. Listen, how many people were at the well? Two. So Jesus isn't trying to confront her in front of all the disciples or other people or trying to like say, hey, you're a terrible person. Don't you all agree? He's confronting her gently, tenderly, in mercy, drawing her out to acknowledge where she is as a person so that then he can meet her and bring her in. I love the fact that he was valuing her and honoring her by talking to her. Jesus did not value uh, speaking to 5,000 people more than he valued this moment. Jesus, listen, this is the longest conversation Jesus has in the Gospels with one person. Longer than Nicodemus. The longest conversation that Jesus had that we have recorded is with this woman. She had never had a man who treated her like this. Who didn't want something from her. Was talking to her respectfully, out of kindness. Engaging her in deep, caring conversation. And don't miss something here. Jesus is the seventh man, right? Five husbands, the man she's now living with, and now Jesus. Seven is a picture of completeness or perfection. It's almost like Jesus is like, okay, your, your, journey, your journey's done with these men. You have met the man that you've longed for in your soul, the man who loves you for who you are, knows you fully, and loves you for who you are, and does not expect anything from you. Jesus came to make outsiders into insiders. How does this woman respond? Verse 19, the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Now, some have suggested, and I'm not saying they're wrong, but I think they're wrong. (laughs) There's no way to know for sure, that she's just like changing the topic here, right? Like you're engaging with your friend about the gospel and you're talking to them and you're getting close and you're talking about things and you're kind of getting close and then you're like really, you know, and you're like, oh, this is happening. This is really happening. And there's like, well, I just don't know what about Noah's Ark. And you're like, what? <laughs> like, like, yeah, I just, you know, I just don't think a flood could happen. Okay. You know, we were over here talking about Jesus and the cross and what eternal life means. And you're like, I don't know about the Noah's Ark thing, right? (laughs) That's what it feels like, doesn't it? Like, she's like, well, yeah, you know, you guys, there's been this big debate about worship, you know, but I I actually don't see it this way. I, I, I can see it as a woman who's, who's like, her soul is getting stirred, right? And one of the natural questions, if your soul is being stirred is where do I connect with God? 
Where do I go to repent of my sin? Where do, at that point, where do I go and bring an animal for atonement for my sin? Where do I go to meet God? And she's saying, you, you know, my ancestors, they say Mount Gerizim here. It's been here for 400 years. And, but, but your people, the, the Jews say it's, it's in Jerusalem, that I have to go to the temple in Jerusalem to worship. That's what, that's what my professor used to say, my humble but accurate opinion on that. Verse 21, 22, Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you, you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. Jesus identifies the source of her thirst. You are worshiping the wrong thing. Your worship has been aimed in the wrong direction. He says, you worship what you don't know. Every soul worships. This is, this is a really interesting thing. Every, every uh, culture that we have unearthed on planet Earth has objects of worship. Like it's, it's like hardwired into the human soul. And, and I wonder kind of someday, a thousand years from now, if Jesus doesn't come back, like, you know, they're unearthing some parts in Boston and they, they find this person who gave all of their time and all of their energy and all of their talents and put all of their hopes and their dreams into their career. And all the evidence points to that. What do you think their, their observation about that would be? Sure, seems like worship. They were looking to this thing to make them whole. They were giving all their talents and offering it up to say, complete me, fill me, give me meaning, give me purpose, give me hope, right? That sure sounds like worship. We just do it in a different way now and call it something else. He's committed to his career, you know? <laughs> He's just focused on, you know, she's just focused on getting ahead at her job, right? Like everybody you know and everybody I know worships. And it might be career, it might be relationships, it might be pleasure, but we all worship something. And Jesus is highlighting that whatever this woman was worshiping was why she was struggling to be satisfied. Because that thing, whatever it is, if you raise it to that level, even a good thing raised to the level of God becomes an idol and that idol will enslave you and ultimately will never satisfy you. That's why Jesus says in 23, but the hour is coming is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. He wants people who, with openness and honesty, come before him and see him for who he is and want to worship him and follow him and know him and be a part of his family. And I love the fact that he uses the language, he's talking to her, remember, seeking she, can you imagine how it, heard for, how it impacted her to hear that God was seeking worshipers like her? A woman who'd been outcast, but now it isn't about her just seeking God and seeking to go to Mount Gerizim or go to Jerusalem. She said, no, Jesus says, no, God is seeking worshipers like you. It's not matter whether you're seeking him. He is seeking you. She had no idea. I, she still, I don't think at this moment, had any idea that God had actually come to Samaria to that well to seek her, to bring her in to be a worshiper, right? So Jesus gets at the source of her thirst. Thirdly here, Jesus satisfies her thirst. Verse 25, the woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. He who is called Christ, when he comes, he will tell us all things. 
Now, the Samaritans had a slightly different view of the Messiah than, than uh, the Jews because Samaritans' history uh, didn't, wasn't really favorable towards like David and Solomon. They, they, that was sort of the last of the United Kingdom, right? And then right after Solomon, Israel, the northern kingdom, which Samaria was a part of, became a separate entity. And so their, their uh, identity was more connected with Abraham, who had lived in that area, and Jacob, who had obviously lived in that area, and Moses, who had um, led his people, God's people through that area. So they saw, the, the, they were referencing, or she was referencing Moses, who uh, had said, one day there'll be a prophet that's, or sorry, God said, there will be a prophet like you, Moses, but he will be greater and he will lead my people. And so she's saying, are you this prophet that Moses spoke about? And Jesus says in a very simple, very simple statement, I who speak to you am he. I'm the Messiah. I'm the fulfillment of all the promises that the Samaritan people have ever had related to God. I am the anointed one, not just for the Jews, but for the Samaritans, for the Romans, and for everyone. Verse 28 So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of town and were coming to him. Now, this is the clue. This woman was so impacted by this moment, by by this revelation of who Jesus was, that she put down her water jar, went back into the town where she was a social outcast, and began telling everyone about Jesus. There was a change in this woman. This woman... The, 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 the thirst in her soul had been met. And the only way she could describe it was to say, he, he was the one who told me everything I ever did, right? And, and could this be the Christ, the Messiah? Something was different. Her deepest longing to be fully known and yet fully loved was found. And he had given her the living water. And this leads us to the final point here, that Jesus shares the joy of the harvest here. Look at verses 39 through 42. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. So this woman began to go out and share about Jesus. She didn't have a seminary degree. She didn't have an alpha program to invite anyone to. She she didn't have a community group to support her and pray for her and help her. All she knew was what Jesus had done for her. And I would argue this, sometimes the longer we're a Christian, the harder we make actually sharing Jesus with other people. That's often why new Christians are the best at sharing the gospel. Why? Because they, they, they have Jesus, and Jesus is enough. And they don't feel like it's their job to go answer everyone's questions. They believe that it's their job to share Jesus. Jesus is the one that changes people, not answers to people's questions. Not against that. Big fan of apologetics. I think it's helpful. But no one became a Christian because you answered an intellectual question. They become a Christian because they see Jesus. And I would argue Jesus has a way of kind of overwhelming all of those intellectual questions when the time's right. So answer them, but always keep pointing to Jesus. Jesus is pumped about this. They believed. 
Verse 40, they asked him to stay, right? They asked him to, to stay with them two more days. By the way, this is the, the, the word abide, which I to, I've already told you, and John comes up over and over again. He loves this word. He's, the, these folks are so taken in by Jesus. They're like, will you abide with us? Will you remain with us? Can we be with you? Can we abide with you for a few days? We want to know you. And Jesus abided with them. These were outsiders that Jesus was making insiders. You see, Jesus had a way of going around and doing this all over. And it was an absolute joy to him. How do we know this? Well, backing up in verse 31 through 34. Meanwhile, (coughs) the disciples were urging him. So they had just come back. They said, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone, anyone brought him something to eat? And Jesus said to him, them, my food is to the, do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Now, I want to say this. The first, I remember reading this thing. Okay, Jesus being super spiritual now, right? Like, just, I just eat the food of God's will, right? <laughs> like, I mean, I'll be honest. I was like, come on. Like, Jesus, I get you said that. But, like, what, we kind of need to eat food. But, what, but what, what I missed was that Jesus was saying in this moment something was happening there was more joy than food. Have you ever experienced that? Have you ever been so caught up in something and doing something and engaged in something or something happening that you forget to eat? I remember, I remember the days my girls were born, right? I don't, I mean, I think I ate at some point that day, but like, I don't remember a lot of details. One came in the morning, one was in the afternoon, but like, I don't, I don't remember eating. I remember one time like realizing I hadn't eaten. Why? Because the joy of this moment, and, and if you've experienced this, you know this, there's a joy, there's, a, there's something so exciting, so engaging that you just like forget about food. And Jesus is saying, this is my joy right here. This is better than food to me because I'm seeing outsiders become insiders. I'm seeing those who are far away coming near to me. I'm seeing people who are alienated becoming children of God. Jesus was not just seeing this woman, but the whole village of Sychar experiencing living water for their souls. You know, we, we always clap right after a baptism. If you've, if you've seen it, we clap. And people actually, I know it's really out of character for us. Sometimes people even shout a little bit and, and get really excited. I know that's really foreign for us, but I love it, right? Why are we doing that? Are, are, you know, when you clap, you're, you're doing one of two things. You're either celebrating what's happening or you're saying, good job, right? Are we saying, like, good job. You, you went all the way under, you know, and you're wet. Congratulations, you know. Like, no, we're excited. We're celebrating. We know that Scripture says, Jesus says, there's more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than 99 who don't, right? And so there's a picture here. Of the, Jesus is saying of joy. And this is the joy that Christ has in seeing others come to him. A friend of mine, Sean Sears, pastor in the area, says this, the closer you get to Jesus, the more you'll care about those who are far from him. There are millions of people in greater Boston whose souls are like the Sahara Desert right now, and they do not know why. They are drinking from every fountain they can possibly drink from. Pleasure, money, 
relationships, experiences, just just pouring it down. And it's like it's like a drop of dirty water. It's just just enough to go, oh, that was okay. That was almost, oh, that was okay. And then they just keep going. The question is, like, do we see the people around us that God has put in our, in our circle, our, our, our neighborhood, our neighbors, our coworkers, our friends, our colleagues, do we see them like Jesus did? Because Jesus said in this passage, he says, look, the, the fields are ripe to harvest. There are a lot of thirsty people out there. Does anyone look out at those around you and just go, there's just a lot of peace out there. Just so much peace. So much joy, so much sustaining, life-giving water among my friends who know nothing of Jesus. I'm not saying there aren't happy pagans. Sure there are. There's always a few. There's always some. But by and large, I'm sure that's probably not the case with you. Because like, I know a lot of people who just seem really satisfied and having a deep, abiding peace. So the question is, do we look at them like Jesus does? Do we love them like Jesus does? Do we long that those who are on the outside can be brought in like we were by Jesus? And are we willing to take steps to do that? Are we willing to move? I think sometimes we forget Christianity isn't... isn't, A friend of mine says this, the um, the church is Christians, but the church does not fundamentally exist for Christians. We're the, one of the few organizations in the world that is losing if we're not, not growing. There's a lot of organizations that can sort of maintain where they are. They reach a level. They're doing great. They're knocking out things. But, but the church is always moving backwards if it's not moving forward. If it's not engaging more people and, and, and telling them the gospel, the church is going backwards. Rebecca McLaughlin said this in closing. You see, Christianity isn't designed for folks who are completely satisfied. It's not for people who have all they've ever wanted here and now. It's for the hungry and the sick, the longing and the lonely, the grieving and the failing, for the ones who know they've made, they're made for something more because Jesus, the bridegroom, is still waiting for his bride. Maybe that's you today. I feel like there's two like major applications. One is for you who have never had that living water. It's never satisfied. You've, you've, you've tried, you've looked, you've been exploring, you've been experiencing, you've, and, and you've just never had that thing that has met your soul. And you've said, that's enough. If that's all I have the rest of my life, that's enough. And that's the living water of Jesus. And it's available to any person in this room right now. And it's available to your next door neighbor and to your friend and to that family member you've been praying for for 25 years. And I think that's one application and invitation. And the other application is for for us who are on the inside. Are we just satisfied being in here? Are we comfortable that no one else comes in? Are we comfortable that we're not a part of helping invite others in as we were invited in by Jesus? Just in this room right now, tomorrow, we will be scattered across the city and in contact with thousands of people. Will we go with the eyes of Christ 
but we go with the heart of Christ. And will we help invite others and make them, take them from being outsiders into insiders? Listen, our, our country, our society is quick fix, right? I'd love to tell you there's an app for this. Just download this app and then just, you know, you'll, you know, <laughs> there is no app. It's a journey and you're gonna journey with people. Some are gonna happen quickly and some are gonna take five or 10. There's a friend I've been praying for for about five years now, six years. Just seems like every time I try to, he takes a little step and then it's a step back. But I know the Lord loves him. I, I'm convinced of it. The Lord has surrounded him with believers who he respects and loves. And I just think God's gonna get him. Like he loves him too much to let him go. Just like he loved me too much to let me go off into my foolishness when I was 18 years old. Let's go ahead and stand. We're gonna move into a time of communion and response. You know, I, I reflected on why this passage is in the Bible because if there were only two people privy to this conversation it had to get in here some way when the disciples well, I mean John wrote it down I think this woman was so excited by what Jesus had done for her that when the disciples got back she just told them and for about two days while they were all with her like she just kept telling them what he had done and this got recorded that's our savior and his tender mercy for you today is afresh and new. And during communion, which is available, uh, gonna be available during this song, you, if you're a Christian, you know where you stand with Jesus. You've had that living water, you've crossed that line into the new birth. Then you can step out and take communion knowing it's done, it's finished. And he doesn't love you any less than he loved that woman at the well. And he didn't die any less for you than he died for her. So take in joy, knowing his body was broken for you, his blood was poured out for you. And if you're not a Christian, this is the one thing we'd ask you to not take, unless you're absolutely sure where you are with Jesus, this is not your next step. Your next step is to take Christ, to take the living water. And we wanna help you with that. And you can mark on your connection card. There'll be people over here by the window to pray with you the rest of the service. I'll be in the back. Um, and after the service over at the connection table, would love to help you in that journey in any way we can. Let's. Let me pray, we'll respond together. Jesus, what a, what a picture of you. Seeking this woman out to bring her in, to show her that she was not forgotten, that she was not alone that her past did not define her, your love for her would define her then and forever. And God, I look forward to the day I get to meet her in the new kingdom. What a beautiful story she has to tell. But Lord, each of us has a beautiful story to tell if we're a follower of Jesus. You met us, gave us life. And as we take the bread and the cup, we remember all that you did to make that happen great name.